Hi, everybody. Today, we'll be uh, continuing our journey through Exodus, and we'll be discussing portions of Exodus 11, 1 through Exodus 12, 36. It's uh, about 46 chapters, or 46 verses, chapters, whoa, uh, 46 information-rich verses with so many themes and concepts that can and do fill multiple volumes of books. So I wasn't altogether sure about how to present this, so I decided I'll just take it as it comes. I'll go verse by verse, uh, condense some parts, and focus, of course, on the tenth and final plague. So, first, a summary. In the book of Exodus, we find the people of Israel, future recipients of a promise by God, enslaved to the nation of Egypt. There they are. Losing their identity in the midst of their suffering and crying out for help. God hears their prayers and sends an ambassador, an emissary named Moses. And representing God, Moses speaks to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and says these famous words. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Pharaoh refuses. And so God begins to unleash wave after wave of plague in the form of natural events gone wild. Oops. That's how wild it went. Wave after wave. There we go. Wave after wave of, of plague uh, to show that through these displays of power and wonder, both Israel and Egypt may know who Yahweh is. Pharaoh was only willing to agree to God's terms if his own conditions were met. Some of you can go or leave your stuff here. You can go. In today's passage, God and Pharaoh find themselves at this impasse. The Lord said to I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, At midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. What is the final plague? It's the targeted death of every firstborn being in Egypt, from the crown prince to the miller of grain to the livestock of the nation. Social status will not spare anyone. Every single family in Egypt will be touched by this plague. This plague is distinct from all the other plagues because it has no natural explanation. A few weeks ago, Pastor Kevin spoke about the scientific explanations for the first nine plagues, or one of them. A mudslide in Ethiopia turns the Nile red, driving frogs out of the waters in droves, leading to an overabundance of gnats and flies, and incubating disease in animals and humans. Hailstorms are not uncommon, and history is filled with stories of swarms of locusts that decimate grain stores. Darkness a dust storm, or perhaps a solar eclipse. The death of the firstborn of Egypt, 
Some have tried to explain it as some strange, weird, fantastical amalgamation of cultural and biological factors that join together to affect a specific group. But there's a word for something, for someone that sticks to a theory like this. Reaching. (laughs) There's no known disease that behaves like this, that strikes a specific subset of a population all at the same time and leaves everyone else untouched. And it is not only the the non-firstborn of Egypt that remains unharmed. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or never will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out! You and all your people that follow you. And after that, I will go out. As Pastor Danielle said last week, these plagues may exist as polemics against Egyptian religion. Each plague represents a different god in the Egyptian pantheon. And by turning the world upside down on these deities, God is addressing the fact that Egypt has fallen into the mistake that every human being is susceptible to. Worship of the created. Whether it be the sun, the moon, the ocean, technology, celebrities, money, prestige, social status, or whatever. We can all focus on the gifts that God provides instead of the God that provides. In addition to this tenth plague, according to writer James Newsom, the tenth plague emphasizes all are affected by these aspects of creation gone berserk. Egypt's enslavement of Israel has so upset the moral order of the world that the order of nature has become upset as well. And so the sun no longer shines. The waters bring destruction instead of life. The insects and frogs fall out of balance. Epidemics rise, animals die. And the firstborn of Egypt, representing the best that Egypt has to offer, are lost. And Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So, so far we've taken this trip through the text, and it's been pretty consistent. But at this point, this text seems to take a detour. From chapter 11, verse 10, to about chapter 12, verse 28, we spend 13 verses speaking about, not about what happens in Egypt, but we speak about addressing what Israel should do in order to avoid this plus plague, in order to be passed over. And it seems strange that for the first nine plagues, Israel was not required to do a thing. But for this tenth plague, the necessary actions are quite elaborate. Care for a lamb for four days, then kill it at twilight, place its blood on the doorpost of your home, roast it, and then eat it while you're fully dressed and ready to go on a journey. It's cultic, ritualized behavior. And through it, God begins a pattern that Israel will experience for the next 40 years. Hi, I'm the Lord your God. You don't know me very well, but I know you extremely well. And to develop our relationship, I need you to do what I ask of you. Remember what the plagues are. God himself says the plagues serve as an introduction. Through these these displays of power and wonder, both Egypt and Israel may know that he is God and the earth is his. 
Exodus then spends the next 15 verses addressing how the Israelites' future descendants will remember this event, including a seven-day festival, complete with the celebration of the Sabbath, a communal gathering, unleavened bread, and questions for yet-to-be-born children to ask. Right in the middle of the narrative, it leaps ahead into the future, acting as though the plague has already occurred, acting as though Israel has already been passed over, acting as though Israel has already been freed by, from Egypt. Isn't this kind of like the 49ers planning the Super Bowl parade before they even play a game? Or the Raiders even thinking that they're going to make it to the Super Bowl? Yes. Yes, it seems like they're putting the cart before the horse. But remember two things. First of all, Exodus was written after all these events took place. So yes, from the perspective of the writer looking back, Israel has already been freed from Egypt. But second... This event defines Israel as a people. The Exodus is seminal to the history and culture of the Israelites and their descendants. And so it is absolutely necessary for Israel to continue its significance and its ongoing participation with God. God is Israel's deliverer. Israel is God's delivered. And now after this detour into the future, we return to the main thread of the story. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. It's a jarring series of verses. Because within it lies the story of the death of thousands of people and the grief of a nation. Why is God targeting the firstborn? What is so special about the firstborn? It's because of what the firstborn represents and because of who the firstborn belong to. Now, raise your hand if you are a firstborn son or daughter. If you are the first in your, in your family to be born among your siblings. Okay, we have quite a bit here. Good. Okay, put your hands down. In my immediate family, I have an older sister, but I'm the firstborn son. Moreover, my father is the firstborn son of his family. I am the firstborn son of the firstborn son. And I never really gave that much thought until one of my aunts took me aside. And I, right now I apologize for the accent I'm going to use, but I have to use the accent to make it legitimate. Okay? My aunt took me aside and said, you're getting old. You need to get married and have children. I said, Why? She replied, you have to continue the family line. You have to continue the family line. <laughs> I said, well, my sister has two kids. She replied, they belong to your sister's husband's family, and they're not going to carry your family name. I said, well, I have six male cousins. They're all first cousins. They all have the same family name, and most of them have kids. She replied, it's not the same. Your father is the oldest son, and your cousins are not your father's son. And that's when I realized why I had been always treated a little differently than my cousins my whole life, kind of as the golden boy of the family. It's because in my extended family, I am the firstborn son of the firstborn son. And thus, there are certain expectations and responsibilities that I have to carry. Have any of you firstborn folks felt this kind of responsibility or pressure? Okay, one, two, yes. I know there's more, three, there's more of you. I know there's more of you out there. But you can actually see it portrayed here in this photo. 
Tell me who's the firstborn, firstborn son. The one, the, the one in the middle, right? How can you tell? He's in the front. He's older, but he's sitting at the same level as his parents, as though they were equals. And, notice this, the family is arranged around him, as though the family is protecting him. And that's not a far off from the truth. This perspective on the firstborn son is not unique to this culture or this time in history. In many ancient societies, including, including Egypt and Israel, firstborn sons were the pride of the family and the hope for the future, being expected to care for the family if the father died. The family's best was poured into them, and they were given every opportunity to succeed, even at the cost of the other children. For example, when food was scarce, the firstborn son was fed first and often received a double portion of food. This idea of privilege was actually codified in the book of Deuteronomy, where the firstborn was said to have inherited double of what any other son would receive. Now, how do I portray the effects that the tenth plague had upon Egypt? I need everybody to stand up. Everybody stand up. You, you, put your books down for the side or your food or whatever you're doing right now. Stand up. Okay. All right. Um, firstborn folks, raise your hands. Okay, now look around, folks. We are Egypt. Look upon the people that are raising their hands, the firstborn. They are the pride of Egypt, the best that we have to offer. We've channeled all of our resources into them. We've sacrificed so they can represent our families, and they are the hope of our nation's future. Now, firstborn sons and daughters only, everywhere you are in the room, everywhere with your hands up, sit down quickly. Egypt. In the blink of an eye, we have lost the best and brightest, the apples of our eye, our best hopes. I love that. <laughs> As Professor John Goldingay said, this plague was the ultimate disaster for the Egyptians since all the plans and dreams of a family were based upon the firstborn son. You can sit down. I'm going to have you stand a little longer, but all right. This damaged them, their society so deeply. Previous plagues had targeted the Egyptians' crops and their animals and inflicted boils upon the Egyptian people. But this tenth plague, this plague struck at the very heart of the Egyptian family and its future. And in Exodus, we can see the effect that such a loss has had upon the Egyptians. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. <laughs> the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. The response by Egypt was immediate. Pharaoh had a complete change of heart, ordering Moses to take Israel, but not, not before requesting a blessing. But the question still remains, why did God target the firstborn? Why would God choose such a seemingly cruel method to secure Israel's freedom? One perspective is that this tenth plague is an application of the lex talionis, the law of retribution. Payback. Leviticus 24, 19. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And in Exodus 1, Pharaoh has issued an order of infanticide. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. 
And because of this, God's targeting of the offspring of Egypt can seem like an equal response, eye for eye. And that was almost 80 years before we come to Exodus 4. But God seems to apply the law not just to that episode in Exodus 4, but also to the 400 years or so of abuse and enslavement by Egypt. Israel is my firstborn son, but you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. It's an equal response. But maybe there's more to the story. What if the death of the firstborn son wasn't an equal response? Wasn't just an equal response? What if it was a measured response? In fact, an act of mercy upon the Egyptians. We can see that as time goes on, the intensity of the plagues keeps escalating. From loss of water, to loss of livestock, to injury, to loss of crops, and finally to the loss of the sun, which makes all life on earth possible. Finally culminating in the death of the firstborn. This last plague is what secures Israel's freedom. But we have 20-20 hindsight. We know that it is this tenth plague that does secure Israel's freedom. It's part of our history. But it's very much the present for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They aren't certain about what lies ahead. If, and what will happen to them if they do not capitulate to God and free the Hebrew slaves? And their comments suggest that they expected much worse to happen. So here, before the eighth plague, we have some of the ministers for Pharaoh saying, Let the men go, that they may serve their Lord, the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And then after the tenth plague, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out in the land of haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. At this point, there was genuine fear that an eleventh plague might be on the horizon. And keeping the Israelites in Egypt any longer would mean the end of the entire Egyptian nation. So from this perspective, Egypt felt that they avoided total retribution, and that in fact God, Yodhe was being merciful by not extending that last plague upon them. Moving forward, in Exodus chapter 13, we find God further fleshing out the Passover rituals and her descent, uh, that Israel and her descendants would observe from this point forward. There it is. God is for Israel. God elaborates on the importance of the firstborn, though, before and after this, saying these things. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whoever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both to man and a beast, is mine. And later on in the passage we have, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. A little bit down. Therefore, I sacrifice the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. This is basically saying an acknowledgement of the emancipation that they received. Israel will set apart its firstborn for Yohei Now, again, we know the purpose of the plagues was as an introduction to let Israel and Egypt know that Yahweh is God and that everything and everyone belong to him. In this passage, God makes a clear statement of possession. The firstborn are to be set apart for me. And if the firstborn firstborn of Israel belong to God, then since God is also God over Egypt, would the firstborn of Egypt also be his? In this sense, the firstborn were sacrificed for Israel's freedom. 
but they might also have been sacrificed for Israel's, for Egypt's existence. If it wasn't for their death, the plagues may have continued and escalated, and all of Egypt could have been destroyed. The violence of the plagues is difficult to ignore. But there was actually one train of thought that suggests that God's use of force was appropriate. For the sake of time, I won't go through it today, but if you're interested in just war theory, come talk to me. Let's get some good stuff. But uh, last week, uh, I was talking to one of our kids, and I asked her what she thought of the, the last plague. And she said, it seems wrong. Why would God, wouldn't God forgive them? Why did he have to kill them? For some, God's actions speak to that false narrative. God of the Old Testament is vengeful and petty. And God of the New Testament is loving and merciful. An eye for an eye is a compromise that flawed people make. Not a choice that an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God would make. The truth is, there's no simple way to resolve this tension. To quote one theologian, Christians often expect God to be all good. In a moral sense, that is presumably true. But our perspective on God's goodness is often that of children. As far as we're concerned, God does good and bad things. And often we cannot see how the things that feel bad and look bad can be the acts of one who is good. Living by trust in God involves coming to believe that those bad things might actually be good. And with our parents, if we're lucky, the evidence is that the evidence is the fact that so many of God's acts do look good. And we trust God with these others. In other words, we can't tell from our perspective and from our understanding of the world what is absolutely good and what is absolutely bad. But when we look at all of the evidence, we can tell at the heart of God's character and what he wants to show everyone is compassion. About 1,500 years after the first Passover, a group of people gathered to remember how God had rescued them in a foreign land. God was about to rescue Israel again, but this time God himself would be the sacrifice. He would be the firstborn son who lost his life so that people could gain theirs. He would be the Passover lamb whose blood was shed not only for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of all nations. And like the death of the firstborn son of Egypt, his death made no sense. Why would God take such a path? What good could come from such suffering and loss? It may cause us to wonder still, but looking at the plagues of Egypt may remind us of their purpose. Through his death, God will take us to be his people, and he will be our God. We shall know that he is God. Let's pray. God, we are witnesses to so much suffering in this world. And sometimes it boggles our minds that you would allow it to happen. But we know that we are not you. And we cannot easily see how such suffering can be for someone's benefit. We cannot easily understand how pain and loss can bless someone. But we can look back to our past and our history and see over and over and over again how you have made right what was wrong, how you have repaired what was broken, how you have redeemed someone that was lost. Help us to understand what you are doing 
Help us to trust you and your wisdom when we don't understand. And help us to take part in your ongoing work of redemption. Help us to see where our experiences of suffering and loss enable us to do what we could not do otherwise. And give us the courage to say and do what is necessary to alleviate suffering, foster justice, and bring mercy to those around us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.